Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Don't worry about timing the market per se, it's your time in the market. Meaning you got to put your time in, you, you got to always be on the lookout to buy or sell. Don't worry so much about whether you're going to hit it exactly right because you're never going to hit it exactly right. Before we get into today's episode, I want to offer you a free service and a free gift. Yes, a free gift. You're a loyal best ever listener. You deserve free gifts. And it's from our best ever partner, Secure Pay One, the landlord helper. So are you a landlord or investor who's self-managing? Well, if you're self-managing, is that the best way to scale your business? And are you fulfilled by self-managing or would you rather be doing other stuff with your time? Like, I don't know, scaling your business, scaling your portfolio, making more money, bringing more rentals, rental income coming in because you're acquiring more properties. If you want to scale, if you're not getting fulfilled by self-managing, then here comes a free service. Here comes a free gift. Linda Libatory, you know her, episode 714 I interviewed her about her best ever advice, talked to her about her company, which is the solution to your problem, Secure Pay One, the landlord helper. They handle the phone calls, they handle the rent collections, they handle late payment reminders, they handle the lease violation notices, everything from the text messages, reminders, all the way to collecting the ACH payments. Linda's team will help you scale your business, whether you got 500 units or even a handful of units, go to mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. That's mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. They're going to give you a free 30-minute goal strategy session. They'll give you free setup and the first 30 days free, mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Again, if you are self-managing and you're not fulfilled by self-managing and you agree that there's a better way to scale your business, scale your investments, then go to mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Take Linda and her team up on their generous offer of giving you a trial and a strategy session to see if it's right for you. mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any fluff with us today. John Azar, how you doing, my friend? Good, man. How are you? I'm doing well. Nice to have you on the show. A little bit about John. Well, he co-manages the company's newly launched $100 million private equity fund. So we've got a lot to talk about. He's the EVP, Executive Vice President and Managing Member of MACC Venture Partners. 
which is a private equity commercial real estate firm based in Charlotte, North Carolina. With that being said, John, you want to give the best of our listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. My background is mostly investments, finance heavy. started out in sort of wealth management, commercial banking, as well as institutional investment products, and had a real estate startup company, a real estate development consulting company that started back in 2000. 2003, 2004, right after I left Morgan Stanley and did some uh, consulting for large-scale mixed-use developments in New York, Philadelphia, Miami area, and then obviously when the market took a dive in 2007, 2008, projects dried up and had to look for a day job again. At the same time, my brother was launching a new company here in Charlotte, which is the commercial firm that we have today. Grew it to a certain extent in the next few years, and then in 2012, 2013, it got more involved in the fold, and by 2015, 16, we launched sort of a new private equity pursuit, and we just launched a new $100 million fund. You've been busy. We have. Our company is, for the most part, a multifamily owner-operator. We buy and operate apartment complexes, essentially, across the southeast. I want to focus our conversation on that, but just to tie up some questions on your background, one is you were... Consulting for large mixed-use development projects in the Northeast, what were they paying you to talk to them about? Our role, the company that I was with with my partners, our role was essentially investment bankers for these large-scale developments. We would essentially package the deal in a nice little package with a ribbon on it and get paid a fee and kind of walk away from it. We didn't really necessarily take equity in any of the deals. We just made sure the Buyers and the sellers are in the same in the same place. The financing is there. The sort of alternate financing, if it was there, we would arrange the feasibility studies and any kind of introductions to local municipalities or maybe the federal government is involved. If there's any brownfield issues or contamination issues that needed needed federal involvement, we would kind of look into that as well. And most projects typically took about a year, year and a half to kind of come to fruition, just because it's a long cycle. With those, I mean, we're talking about large scale, meaning most of our projects that are ranging between 50 to $250 million. So you would work with the operators and they identify the opportunity. You then go find them the money and help take it to the finish line? No, sometimes we would identify the opportunities for them as well. They would just tell us we're interested in this city. Uh huh. They meaning the money people? They meaning the developers or the money people. Okay. We would work with developers. We would work with money people. We would work with pretty much anybody that had an interest in getting a large-scale real estate project off the ground. So most of the time, it's usually developers who would come to us and say, interested in possibly doing a residential project in Boston. What do you think is out there that could be worth pursuing? And then from there, we would sort of go and look for something. I mean, we had a hotel conversion project in New York City that went from converting from a, a condo project to a hotel project. So that was an example. Not what hotel? What project we worked on. Which hotel? It was an old hotel. It shut down. It's no longer, it was no longer operational, but it turned into, into more of a mixed-use residential, higher-end residential. But that would be one sample of a project. The other projects would involve, could be just raw land. The two or three projects that kind of died out in 2007 were on the waterfront in Boston, actually in East Boston and, and Charlestown. They were large old Navy yard projects that had a lot of contamination issues that were going to be set to be converted to, again, large-scale mixed-use or residential developments. And the 2007 hit, and any money for decontaminations and any kind of stuff like that dried up completely. 
And how long, just on that one project, the waterfront project, how long had you been working on it before you no longer were working on it and had this we, shift? We, were, we worked on it for over a year, year and a half. For a best ever listener who perhaps has a taste of that, maybe not the full spectrum, but maybe they've been working on a project for six, eight months, and then it, poof, disappears. What would you say to them for how to deal with that? Look, we're going to have failures. That's just part of the game. You're going to work on projects that you're going to put your heart and soul into, and it's not going to come through. That doesn't mean it wasn't a good project. It doesn't mean that you were a failure. It just means that just the project and the timing just wasn't right for some reason, and, and things, the stars didn't align. The project could maybe work in five years later or three years later or maybe three years or earlier. But for whatever reason, it just didn't work. And I would just dust yourself off and just keep moving. That's the only choice that you have. Mm-hmm. So now let's talk about the $100 million fund that you all have recently launched. What is your specific role with the fund? Most of what I do is work with our investors and equity participants, equity partners. I help structure the capital, um, the capital structure, the capital fundraising portion of it. Anything that involves that surrounds around the, the, the capital and the financing end of it, that's typically sort of my domain. My brother, who is the principal and CEO of the firm as well, it handles a lot of the acquisitions and asset sourcing and the underwriting when it comes to some of the assets that we do. So he's out shopping for stuff to buy, and I'm out shopping for money. Yep, makes sense. That is very similar structure for how my business partner and I have it set up. I'm sure, just like with us, your responsibilities overlap, but those are your primary focuses, right? Exactly. I get it. I'm responsible for the money. He's responsible for the assets. Right. I get it. So $100 bucks. how long did it take to raise that amount of money? We're still raising, and it's going to be an institutional-grade fund, which means that we will mostly be after institutional investors that are mostly going to be the pension funds, the endowments of the world, as opposed to sort of the accredited investors, which we still have. So how historically we've operated and bought our properties is through individual syndications, which is sort of the model that most people in our industry have, and we still have that. We did not get away from the individual syndication model, so we're going to have a fund that will buy assets through, but we're also going to have maintain an individual syndication model, which is going to be open for our normal investor, our regular sort of day-to-day accredited investors, high net worth investors that have been with us for the past 10 years plus. These are investors that are usually typically invest anywhere between, let's call it 100000 up to 500000 on a project with us. And they're usually good for two or three projects per year. They're not necessarily our target for the $100 million fund. They can certainly participate in the $100 million fund, but the minimums are much higher for our fund. They're typically a $1 million minimum for individual investors and $15 million minimum for institutional investors. So your experience with how your career started is really going to play a big role in this, where you started in wealth management and you're in the Northeast where a lot of the money is. And are you working on those connections to get the $100 million closed out? You work all your connections all the time. (laughs) (laughs) You, You have your connections that you work with in the past. You create new connections. I love meeting people. To me, this is a people business at the end. The day. I love meeting new people. I've made a lot of great friends and a lot of new connections here in North Carolina, and I continue to expand my network on a day-to-day basis. And every now and then, I'm lucky enough to make a few friends along the way, which is, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. The goal is $100 million. What have you got right now committed? 
Right now, we have about 5 million because we just got started. You just launched it. We just launched it. We literally just launched it a couple of weeks ago. The ink is still drying on some of the docs that just got finished. So how does that work with a fund? With the 5 million that's committed, do they transfer the money into an account since it's a fund? You don't have to take all the money we do capital commitments. And what that means is that you sign a capital commitment letter or capital commitment document and essentially put a portion of the money down and the rest of it is due upon capital calls. That's how you sort of use the money, use the money via capital calls structure. So as soon as we hit certain milestones or certain hurdle rates, then we do a capital call. Let's say we our first milestone for this fund is $20 million. As soon as we hit $20 million, then we do a capital call and start buying assets. We don't have to wait until the whole $100 million is in. Okay. It might take us a year, a year and a half to raise the $100 million or even two years to raise We have up to two years to raise the $100 million. Mm-hmm. So it might take us the full two years. We might be lucky enough to finish it in the next 10 to 12 months. Mm-hmm. You might finish it after this interview goes on. We, we, well, that would be fantastic. <laughs> That would be music to my ears. <laughs> With the initial portion of money down, what percentage is that of their overall commitment? It's five million. It's five percent. No, no, no. You said you do capital commitment letters, and a portion of their money is down. What percent does someone have to put down? Typically, twenty percent. Twenty percent down. Yeah. And that doesn't generate an interest until you actually buy something so you reach like the $20 million threshold. That's right. It generates an interest. We put it in an interest-bearing segregated account. So okay. it's, it's almost like an escrow account, same, same interest as any escrow account. Right. You talk about market rates of next to nothing on yep. escrow accounts these days. But, yeah, yeah. You know, but until you actually uh, pull the trigger and start buying projects, no, they are not earning anything. Why $100 million? Why not... 105 or 85 million or 125 million. How'd you come up with that number? Besides, it sounds good. Yeah, yeah, it does sound good. A lot of it is funds are sort of an interesting creature. You got to do certain numbers and it's almost psychological. You either do, if you're not going to do 100 million, so you should do 50 million. If you're not going to do 50 million, you should probably do 25 or 20 million or something like that. Once you hit certain sort of thresholds, you should just move on to the next threshold because otherwise you're putting just as much money and effort into raising 50 million as you are raising 100 million. Once you start getting into that range between 50 and 100 million, you might as well go for the 100 million because to raise 75 or 80 or 85 million is going to take you just as much effort, just as much being on the road, just as many meetings as raising 100 million. So why would you cut yourself short and raise 85 million as opposed to 100 million? Mm -hmm. And why do a fund versus do individual investments like I imagine you all have been doing? Like I said, we still have the individual investments. The fund really is going to allow us to have ready-to-deploy capital for projects that we can pull the trigger on pretty quickly and deploy capital quickly. It really gives us a sort of a competitive advantage on some of the smaller deals rather than the larger deals. Larger deals, we have a lot of institutional partners that we deal with that we feel pretty confident that we can pull a trigger on and we can always participate. Larger deal meaning lead deals that will require anywhere between 10 to $20 million in equity raises. Smaller deals are below that $8 million, $7 million threshold. There's a tricky sort of delta, which is between the $2 million, $1 million, and $6 million, where it's a really tough phase to do between $2 million and $6, seven, $8 million. Because it's not quite big enough for institutional guys to participate in. A little bit sometimes too big for the smaller guys to participate in because you can easily raise $3 million from just regular individual investors. 
But when you hit that eight million or three to seven million, mm-hmm. it, it gets to be that kind of no man's land kind of parameter where you have to either do a combination of a small investors and an institutional investor, or, or you have to find a specialty institutional investor where they're willing to do five to six, seven million dollar investment with us. So it, it's a little bit more tricky. It takes a little bit more time. So having the fund will really give us a lot more flexibility, allow us to be more nimble executing on deals. From an advantage standpoint for you all, what are the ways that you make money on the fund versus a typical syndication? The fund, we make a little less money, that's for sure. We make more money on syndications than we do on the fund, but the fund allows us to expand our bandwidth a lot quicker. Obviously, so $100 million in an equity fund will buy us close to, let's call it, if we're doing 75% leverage, 25% equity, you're talking about close to $400 million worth of assets to add on portfolios. So you can scale pretty quickly with those parameters as opposed to individual syndication, which is onesie, twosie, you have to go out there. and, And the other thing that the fund will allow us to do is we can go out and buy a portfolio of assets as opposed to just one asset at a time and syndicate it one at a time. So if we see a portfolio of two or three different assets, four different assets that, that have maybe an aggregated number of 11, 1,200 units, we can utilize the fund to pull the trigger on something like that much easier than we can if we have to syndicate that. I know you've been asked this before. What's your answer to someone saying, well, John, this is the hottest time right now to sell. It's a seller's market. Why are you doing a $100 million fund to buy? Because we are in the top of the market. We're going to start seeing a contraction soon. We have already started seeing contraction in the marketplace in some larger cities. Rents and Class A products have already started taking the hit in some larger cities like New York, Boston, LA. We've already started hearing whispers on the street that the sort of the contraction has already started in the A-class in certain metropolitan areas. So it's really only a matter of time before this hits the rest of the street. Right now, there's still a glut of buyers and a glut of sellers because of that exact reason, because they know that the roller coaster is at the top and it's getting ready to kind of get down a little bit. I'm not saying we're looking at a cliff scenario per se, but even a, a small contraction is going to leave plenty of room for more buyers than sellers, which is a great place for us. That's what we want. And we feel that this is the right time to be in the market. We're not quite at the back up the truck scenario with with buying, but we feel like in the next six to 12 months, there's going to be some really great deals coming out of the market. And there will be really great deals coming on the market because they will be forced to sell because of the contraction or because they're trying to sell to get out ahead of it? The ones that are trying to sell ahead of it are selling now. These are the people that are in the market now trying to sell. If you have a property that you're trying to sell, any broker that you talk to, any commercial broker that you talk to will tell you this is the time right now to put it on the market. Of course they'll tell you that. Of course they are. Of course they'll tell you that any time you speak. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but in all honesty, this is the time to put it on the market because we've already started seeing interest rate rise. We've already started seeing cap rates and interest rate have not quite matched up to each other yet. Cap rates are still pretty low and interest rates are just started to creep up after the election. We've already seen 70, 80, 90 basis point upsurge in interest rates since the election until now. So I think that once you start seeing an equalization of interest rates and cap rates, meaning growth in cap rates or the expansion in cap rates is going to match what the expansion in the interest rates are, that's when you're going to start seeing more buyers and less sellers in the marketplace, or actually maybe the opposite, more sellers and mm-hmm. less buyers. John, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? <laughs> 
my best real estate advice is, like I say, with anything as far as investing is concerned, don't worry about timing the market per se. It's your time in the market, meaning you got to put your time in. You, you got to always be on the lookout to buy or sell. Don't worry so much about whether you're going to hit it exactly right because you're never going to hit it exactly right. Nobody has a crystal ball. If you're in the market, if you're playing the game, if you're sort of doing deals on a regular basis, you're going to hit it right when the time comes for you to hit it right. So don't worry so much about timing the market and everything. Because people, a lot of people I talk to in this, in this market, they all worry about how they're going to time the market. I'm like, just be in the market. Be playing an active role somehow. You don't have to buy, per se. I'm not saying buy all the time. We took backseat on buying. In all honesty, back in November, we just started buying now. We stopped buying in from November, December, January, February, and we just pulled the trigger on some projects just in the past month. For a firm like us, which is we're about 5,000 unit size, for us to stop buying for four months was not an easy decision. Four mm-hmm. months is a long time to stop buying, to mm-hmm. pretty much make a decision to get out of the market. But it's okay because we, were, we had a lot of other projects going on. We had some refi projects. So you're always doing things. And you're always looking in the market. You're always sort of your eyes, your hands are in the market somehow or another. And that's really what the key to my advice is. Just be in the market somehow, doing deals, looking at deals, looking at the projects. And don't worry so much about timing the market. I like it. That makes things really simple. And if and when I repeat that quote, I will attribute it to you, I promise. Well, thank you. (laughs) You ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. I love it. All right. Let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Are you an investor who self-manages, talks to your residents, collects checks, and handles all the day-to-day tasks? Well, there's a better way, best ever listener, and guess what? That better way is Secure Pay One. Secure Pay One, the landlord helper, will have conversations over the phone with your residents whenever there's an issue, and the residents can pay you directly. So schedule your free trial and 30-minute session today at mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. That's mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Ready to bring your real estate investing dreams to life? Learn how to get focused, gain momentum, and the proven roadmap to make it happen with the Time for Investing Masterclass. Doors for enrollment are now open. Reserve your spot today with Neva at Neva, N-E-V-A, at timeforinvesting.com. What's the best ever book you've read? Freakonomics. Would you say Freakonomics? Freakonomics, yeah. Oh, cool. I was just reading Tim Ferriss's Tool of Titans and the Freakonomics. One of the authors was profiled in that book, and I was just reading some quotes that he said on the podcast. Yeah, it's a very entertaining book, and it's just it kind of sticks to you. Best ever deal you've done? Best ever deal I've done is pull the trigger on joining my brother and expanding this company. What's a mistake you've made on a deal? Expected less of myself and settling for less than what I'm owed. Mm. Can you elaborate? I was involved in a deal when we are doing mixed-use development consulting, and we kind of got pushed around a little bit on what we were going to be paid. And we thought we were, at the time, I was younger and, and probably a lot more green than I am today. And, and even though we brought a tremendous value to the deal, I thought that it was one of those things where you think you're just kind of lucky to be at the table and you'll kind of take what they'll give you. And that's the wrong attitude because don't ever underestimate what value you bring and don't undercut your own value. And I think that that's what we did back then with that deal. And we got paid a lot less than what we should have earned. What's the best ever way you like to give back? 
I give back in a lot of different ways. I love mentoring. I love working with younger folks. And, and younger, I mean sometimes a lot younger. I'm involved in a couple of different organizations, mentoring organizations for high schoolers and young adults. And when I was in Massachusetts, I was involved in an organization called Year Up, which mentored young adults that are between 18 and 24 and kind of helping them on a career track. I was involved with an organization called NEFTI, which is a network for teaching entrepreneurship. It's more targeted for sort of high school kids. I love working with Habitat for Humanity. I actually, we have teams here every now and then a couple of times a year here in the company. We line up a couple of Habitat projects that we work on, various other community projects and involvement, but mostly mentoring and coaching jazzes me up a lot. Where can the best ever listeners get in touch with you or your firm? They can email me. They can find me on Twitter. They can find me via our website. My email is john, J-O-H-N, at macvp.com, M-A-C-C-V-P.com. They can go on our website, macvp.com, M-A-C-C-V-P.com. And I'm on LinkedIn as well under Jalal John Azar. I'm in plain sight. (laughs) You're everywhere. (laughs) I'm everywhere. Well, John, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for talking about the $100 million fund. I enjoyed learning about the advantages of doing a fund compared to an individual syndication. And you mentioned a couple things. One is the fund allows you to buy faster so you can scale more quickly. And two is you have the flexibility to buy a portfolio of assets. And then also just your overall thoughts on why you're doing a fund now. Because as I said earlier, I imagine you get that question a lot. And the best ever advice where you said you want to make sure that you don't worry about timing the market, but rather it's about your time in the market. Doesn't necessarily mean you're always buying, but you're actively involved in the market in some capacity. And you gave the perfect example of your group that has about 5,000 units and had a hiatus for five or six months now back at it. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Ready to bring your real estate investing dreams to life? Learn how to get focused, gain momentum, and the proven roadmap to make it happen with the Time for Investing Masterclass. Doors for enrollment are now open. Reserve your spot today with Neva at Neva, N-E-V-A, at timeforinvesting.com.